So as I said before, we're doing this series on the three pillars of the Dharma, you know, these uh, dana, sila, and wisdom. So these three aspects that really support the Dharma and keep the teachings going and alive. And so our topic this month is sila or ethical conduct. And um, basically this practice of sila means that we we do our best to act in ways that are kind and don't harm ourselves and others. So that's sort of the big umbrella of kindness and non-harming. So, you know, just as in the meta practice that we just did together, we develop our ability to meet the world with kindness. Kindness in our attitude, kindness in our behavior too. So the the basic guidance for ethical conduct or the kind of specific things we should um, try to do in order to be kind and to avoid harming um, are found in the precepts. And they're also described in the Eightfold Path when it talks about wise action, wise speech, and wise livelihood. And as we go through the month, we'll be talking about these different aspects in more detail specifically. But since this is the first talk on this subject, I thought it would be a good idea to just go over them, go through them briefly so everybody has a sense of what they are. So first there are the precepts, which are the really basic guidance for conduct. And these are to refrain from killing other beings, refrain from taking that which is not offered. And the most simple is refrain from stealing, but it can include more than that, of course. Retrain, refrain from saying things that are not true, refrain from sexual misconduct, and refrain from clouding the mind with alcohol and drugs. And then there is wise speech. And that includes telling the truth, as it talks about in the five precepts, but it also has a lot of other suggestions for skillful speech. And these, these are pretty challenging. You know, in the uh, teachings on why speech suggest that speech should not only be truthful, but also we should say it with kindness. It should be beneficial to the other people that are hearing it, said at the right time when it's appropriate. And also when the other person can be open to what we have to say and actually can get some good out of it. And it's also suggested that we refrain from speech that's abusive or angry, gossiping speech or frivolous speech. So some of those are, you know, not as challenging. Some of them are pretty challenging, like maybe gossip or um Frivolous speech, we might not even sure, be sure what frivolous speech is. And finally, there's wise livelihood, which is to earn your living by doing something that doesn't harm others. And so those are sort of these basic ones. As I said, we'll go into these in more detail. And there's you could give a whole talk about any one of them and spend a whole month studying any one of them. But this gives you just a sense of what is involved. And overall, you can see that this guidance is really meant to give us some suggestions about how to behave in ways that are kind 
and avoid harm, both for other people and for ourselves, and guidance to help us live in harmony with those around us so we don't have a lot of problems and issues. And if we take a moment to think about it, it isn't too hard to understand why the practice of sila would be considered as one of the three pillars of the Dharma. The ideals of kindness and non-harming are just some of the most important and the most basic of the Buddha's teaching. I mean, this is sort of the groundwork of our practice. So seeing that that is true, it just makes sense that learning to behave in accordance with these ideals would be an important part of our practice and something that we would just naturally do. And, you know, one of the main reasons we do practice is that we can develop the wisdom and the open-heartedness and the discipline, too, that we need to actually be able to behave ethically and to avoid harming other people or ourselves and to be kind to other people or ourselves. So, you know, all of the things that we do help us this way and ideally our practice should be moving in that direction of greater kindness and less harm it's not going to happen immediately we're not going to be transformed and be perfect we all realize that we know that but still moving in that direction for greater kindness less harm fewer issues when it comes to our contact conduct but at the same time, you know, often when we first come to meditation, ethical conduct isn't really the thing that's right at the forefront of our minds. We might not even be thinking about it very much at all. When we start our meditation practice, for example, if we're kind of with a more secular focus, the goals we have at first might be just to learn some techniques that will help us to relax and feel less anxious and stressed. And that might be all we feel like we're interested in. We're not really interested in the spiritual path. We're not really interested in Buddhism. We just want some good ways to help us feel more relaxed. And that's what lots of people these days think about when they consider meditation. Or maybe, you know, we might be looking for some kind of new exotic experience. You know, maybe we're thinking that meditation is kind of a Eastern exciting thing and we want to find bliss or rapture or deep peace or some kind of mind states that we just can't access in our daily life. So we're all excited about having, you know, interesting meditation experiences. Or it could be, too, that we're just intrigued by Buddhist philosophy and ideas about emptiness or non-self, and we want to know more about those things. Or it could be, too, we just have a kind of a sense of we're not quite satisfied with our lives. We feel like there's something missing, and we're looking for something, but we're not sure what. So we think, well, hmm, maybe I'll try this practice. But in all of those cases, as you can see, you know, our first thoughts are not about ethical conduct. And I think if we ask people, too, about what Dharma topics they were most interested in and wanted to hear about the most, probably Sila wouldn't be, like, up there, you know, topping the charts. 
And when this subject does come up, it can bring up some confused and difficult feelings. But why would that be true? You know, when you think that our conduct is a really important part of our practice. So that's what I wanted to talk about this morning to get us started this month, you know, about some of the challenges of working with Sila. So as I reflected on um, this topic and um, during the talk that we had, um, all of our LDLs had together when we were planning this month, um, I came up with several reasons why Sila would be challenging and maybe not the most popular of all of the topics that we might bring up. And you might also find your own <coughs> reasons. So one reason for this, I think, is that we might feel as if we've already heard plenty about how we ought to behave. You know, meditation and Buddhist philosophy philosophy might seem like they're, you know, new and interesting and exotic to many of us here in the West. But ethical conduct, hmm, not so much. Most religions have some kind of suggestions for conduct or rules of conduct that aren't so different from what we see in the precepts. Don't kill, don't lie, don't steal, and so forth. So we might feel like we already have heard about these things. And we know about these things already. And so there's nothing really all that new here in this subject of ethical conduct. And we might also have a feeling that, you know, our, our conduct in general is not all that bad. You know, I mean, we're not perfect, but basically we're decent people. We're law-abiding people. We're not doing any really horrible things. So we may feel like this issue is not something we're worrying a whole lot about. So that's one kind of view, that it's we kind of know about it already. So it's sort of, you know, been there, done that, a little bit boring. We might also come from a background where we were brought up with some, with really rigid rules for behavior, and maybe rules that didn't necessarily make sense to us, and maybe rules that weren't always applied Fairly, we might have been in an environment where there were strict rules, but and we were always told we were supposed to do such and such, but we found that many people were like, do as I say, not as I do. So that can kind of create issues, you know, seeing a lot of hypocrisy. And all of these things, having very rigid rules, not really understanding why, seeing that people didn't really adhere to them, can bring up in us a feeling of resistance towards rules, kind of a sense that uh, maybe we're a little bit suspicious of those who are too anxious to enforce rules. Because maybe that enforcing is more to their advantage than to our advantage. Or it could be that we just don't like to be told what to do and how to act. And we might even agree with a lot of the suggestions for ethical conduct, but there's this feeling of, yeah, this is all good. I just don't want to be lectured about it, you know, this sort of feeling. Maybe it's a rebellious streak we have left over from our teenage years. Or maybe this, there's this kind of sense that, you know, I don't want to feel like 
little Miss Goody Two Shoes that's always, you know, trying to be so nice and so polite and obey all the rules and all that kind of thing. And I think, you know, even though we've come a long way from our teenage years where it was sort of like, oh, we got to break a few rules to be cool, we may still have that sense that there's something a little bit off-putting and a little bit artificial about trying too hard to always be good and always be nice. You know, something that isn't quite real about that. So Sina can bring up some of those feelings too. We might also come from a background where we've been encouraged to feel a lot of guilt and shame about not following rules or about not being good enough. And so hearing about Sila might bring up a lot of those same kind of feelings in very uncomfortable ways. So for all these reasons, we might resist the topic of Sila. And then, of course, and almost certainly, <laughs> I know this is true for me too, we can feel some resistance to hearing about Sila because it reminds us of some of those things we're doing that, you know, probably we shouldn't be doing. Maybe not big things, but smaller things. Things that we'd prefer to ignore or minimize or not really deal with right now. I think we all know those kinds of things in our lives where our conduct is, well, it may not be so very bad, but on the other hand, there's room for improvement, but we're at the point where we're like, well, we kind of see that, but mm, <laughs> we're not really sure we want to make that effort to improve or to give up what we might have to give up to improve. So there's all these reasons for resistance. And, and I think these things, I can relate to a lot of these myself, you know, the kind of a resistance to too many rules or emphasizing too many rules, kind of knowing there's certain issues that maybe I could deal with, but I'm not quite ready. It's a very familiar kind of territory. On the other hand, there are those of us who might gravitate almost too strongly to this topic of sila. If we like clear rules, we might really be attracted to this area of practice. And in some ways, that can be a really good thing because it's always helpful to be aware of our contact, conduct and the effects it's having on those around us and on us too. So having a healthy commitment to sila is definitely a good thing. And if we feel like our lives are maybe sort of out of control or confusing and we really need some guidelines about what we should do and how we should behave, the precepts can be really, really helpful and really useful. I mean, maybe if we've been missing that in our lives for a long time, it might really be a good thing to have this sense of guidelines to follow. But it's also possible to be so caught up up in trying to do everything right and worrying about the tiny details of everything we do that we feel, you know, trapped, anxious, all of these feelings of self-judgment come up. And that is not really very helpful either. Um, and all of the guilt and shame that we might have felt in our other religious traditions that we have left might come up. Or even if it's not coming from that, it could still come up. 
So there is that issue of self-judgment. Even though, you know, guilt and shame aren't the intent of the teachings of Sila. And then there's also the problem of judgment of others. You know, being obsessed with rules can, in some, you know, too easily lead to a feeling of self-righteousness. You know, noticing how I'm obeying the rules. Why aren't these other people doing it? You know, pointing out the flaws of others. And that's not a good thing or a helpful thing either. So there can be these different attitudes and feelings about Sila that come up. And a lot of times they may not really have very much to do with the suggestions for ethical conduct that are given in the teachings or with the actual practice of Sila itself. It's kind of more like they're things that we bring with us into our practice from our um, home conditioning, culture, cultural conditioning, things we bring with us, sort of this extra baggage without even realizing it. And these things can create difficulties and barriers if we don't notice them. So when we get caught up in this kind of what you might call a following the rules mentality, for Sila, it seems like our tendencies are either to, you know, minimize and dismiss Sila because we don't like this feeling of rules, or maybe aren't ready to work with our own conduct, or we go overboard and obsess about every little thing and get caught up in self-judgment or judgment of others. And neither of these is really helpful. So to work with these kinds of issues, it might be a good idea to point out some of the differences in the way ethical conduct is presented and considered in Buddhism as compared to how it's presented in some other traditions, maybe especially the Judeo-Christian tradition that a lot of us grew up with. So to begin with, the suggestions for wise conduct aren't like rules that you must obey or else... God will punish you. You know, it isn't really about punishment in that way. They're presented much more as ways in which you should behave if you want to live in harmony with the people around you and if you want to live at peace with yourself. And I think there's an understanding in the teachings that if you behave in unskillful ways, there will be unpleasant consequences. Consequences, But it isn't so much like somebody up there is punishing you as more that it's just common sense. You know, if you steal from your neighbors and pick fights with them and spread lies about them, well, no, you're not going to have great relationships with them. I mean, you know, well, duh, it's not going to work. And you won't feel at peace because you're always going to be worrying that maybe the things that you're doing that you shouldn't be doing, somebody will find out, they'll be angry with you, you'll have to face the consequences of your behavior. You know, it's not a very good mindset to be in. You can't be at peace when you're worrying about all that kind of stuff all the time. So there's this sense that these aren't just arbitrary rules, but they're rules that really make sense if you want to have a harmonious society and feel peaceful within yourself. You know, a society where we can all feel safe. And also, in keeping with this idea, the precepts and other suggestions for wise action aren't presented so much as rules but as trainings. 
when we take the precepts, we say, I undertake the training to refrain from killing other living beings. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given, and so forth. So there's a recognition that we aren't going to do all of these things perfectly all the time, that we're going to make mistakes, and we're going to fall short, and sometimes we might not even understand why we should refrain from certain things. But we undertake the training. We see for ourselves what happens when our behavior is skillful, when it's unskillful, and we learn from our own experience that it isn't just isn't worth doing some of these unskillful actions because it leads to many problems. And the Buddha himself really acknowledged this and that ethical conduct could be challenging. Um, and I want to give uh, thanks to Lauren for bringing this up in our discussion, but there's a story where the Buddha is talking with Ananda, his cousin and his close attendant, and he says, you know, even I myself before my awakening thought, renunciation and seclusion is good, but my heart didn't leap at the thought of these things. So even he was like, you know, always behaving well is not so easy. And then the thought occurred to me, he went on to say, I haven't seen the drawback of these, you know, pleasures. And that's why my heart doesn't leap at the thought of renunciation or feel confident, steadfast, or firm. And so, you know, he's saying even here, you know, if we don't really understand why we should behave in certain ways and the benefits of ethical conduct, it's hard to do. But when we really understand, it's much easier to want to behave ethically. It's a learning process. You know, if even the Buddha needs this understanding, so do we. And that brings to mind um, something else I read earlier, read yesterday in the daily quote from Utejaniya that we, you can get online if you want to. And he suggests that rather than worry so much about making more effort, we should consider interest. And I think this really applies to Sila, you know, instead of trying to apply more effort, trying, trying, trying to be good, maybe we should think about getting interested in our conduct instead. Really seeing for ourselves how it makes a difference the way we behave for ourselves and others. And this brings um, me to the fact that Sila is really closely connected with wisdom. You know, sometimes when we talk about the, the three pillar, pillars, uh, Sila is introduced before wisdom with the idea that these ideas of ethical conduct are more familiar and easier for people to understand. And in a way that might be true, but it can also give the impression that you should first perfect, perfect your conduct, and then you can worry about meditation and the development of wisdom. And the problem with that is, you know, if we tried to do that, most of us would never even get to the cushion. You know, it's just too hard. And it's definitely true that if we're doing all kinds of unskillful things in our lives and our minds are all caught up in them, you know, it's going to be hard hard to meditate. We might not even have that kind of interest at all. You know, spiritual practices wouldn't even be on our radar screen. 
But if we do have the interest, you know, as soon as we sit down and find a little calm, all the messy things do come up, you know, messy things in our lives, including some of the guilt or reservations about our behavior that we'd rather not feel. And if we're actually ready to be with those feelings and to work with our behavior, even if we're quite not able to change things yet, that can be a good thing. But if we're not, you know, if we're at the beginning of our practice, then the tendency of most people would be to decide that they just didn't want to feel these things and just give up, say, oh, meditation isn't working for me and to quit. So, you know, some basic level of, ethical conduct and order in our life really helps us to stick with the practice so the things that come up at least are workable for us. And at the same time, you know, the mental training and wisdom that we get through our meditation practice is what really makes it possible for us to behave in an ethical way and understand why it's important. As we do our practice, we come to understand that we really don't need to do some of the things that we're tempted to do. You know, we don't need to do them to preserve our self-image. We don't need to do them because of our cravings, and so we can let them go. And we might see the consequences of our actions more clearly. So we really actually understand the harm that we're causing and are inclined to refrain. We may just generally feel more kindness towards ourselves and more motivated to take care of ourselves and to value our mental and physical health. So there are some things that we just decide, I don't need to do that. And we feel more kindness toward others and just don't want to do harm. So we gradually come to behave in ethical ways because behaving any other way, you know, really... It doesn't make any sense. But that kind of development doesn't happen overnight. And it's not something that we can make happen just by clenching our teeth through some force of will. We have to let the process unfold. It takes time and learning and experience and readiness. So we need to have a lot of patience with ourselves as we investigate and work with this practice of sila. I remember, and many of the rest of you may also remember, how the Dalai Lama often says, my religion is kindness. And that's a beautiful quote. And I think as we enter into our study of sila this month, it's good for us to remember that and remember that, you know, practicing sila is a way to make that a reality for us as well. So let's just sit together for a moment. Thank you all so much for your attention. And now we have some time for group discussion. Um, If you need to leave because you have things going on in your life, um, this is a good time to do that. And we're really happy that you were here for the sit and the Dharma talk. But we very much hope that you will be able to stay.
it's always nice to be able to talk with each other about these issues. So, um, for our discussion today, I'd invite you to share your own feelings about this practice of sila. And maybe um, share the attitudes you bring into your own exploration of it. You know, maybe what are your barriers and challenges? You know, are some of the things I brought up issues for you? And maybe there are ways of thinking about and working with sila that have really been helpful to you that you might want to share. So those are some of the things that you might talk about. Um, so I'll break you up into groups of three or four and um, we'll have, you know, maybe 15 minutes or so to talk and then we'll come back into the larger group to share with each other. Oh, welcome back, everybody. I see all of, all of a sudden the screen just <laughs> populated with all sorts of faces here. So I hope you had an interesting discussion. And, and now we have some time for you to share anything that you might like to share that has come up for you as you were talking. Or if you have any questions that you would like to ask, that's fine, too. The floor is open to anyone who would like to speak. You can let me know that you want to speak by using your virtual hand or I think I can see everybody so raising a physical hand is probably okay too. So Tamira, please unmute yourself and go ahead. Well, I'll share what we were talking about which was um, sort of the ethical and moral responsibility to speak up when you see something unethical or amoral happening and and recognizing that there are consequences when you speak up and how do you decide um, which battles to pick. That's a very challenging topic, really challenging topic. And and I think it's it's something that we we talked about that too a little bit when our LDL group gathered for our discussion about, you know, this topic of SELA and our responsibility in terms of issues out there in the world. And it's a very challenging thing. I don't think there's any good answers. Did you come up with any good answers or thoughts? Oh, I think you're muted, Tamira. No, is she shaking her hand? Not really. <laughs> Not really. No. I mean, maybe. I mean, yeah. yeah, I don't, I don't oh, have ahead. the answers. <laughs> no, I guess, you know, do the best we can. Choose the things that we, where we feel like we can make a difference and that where our interest is greatest. And no, we can't do everything. But this is a huge topic. Around this topic, I brought up the, how grateful I am for the whistleblowers in, our, in my history, the Pentagon Papers, the people who have called out others, the brave folks who have protected children, protected, you know, the 
people open up, who open up their homes to take care of others and call out the, the abusers. I mean, just there's such gratitude that while it's hard, I'm really grateful that we're looking at it because it's, it's hard and important to answer the question for ourselves. And it makes me too think about how this relates to wise speech that, you know, we want the, our speech to be kind and beneficial, but wise speech can be forceful too. So it makes me think that there are times when we might sort of not say anything using the excuse of not wanting to be angry or cause conflict when actually maybe that isn't the wisest choice. <laughs> Anybody else? Ooh, I saw a hand. Oh, Jean. Yes. Go ahead, Jean. Uh, thank you. I, I was wondering why in particular I got uh, really caught by the, when you were describing the, the, the um, challenges of Sila, you, you talked about judgment. And you talked about self-judgment and judgment of others. And uh, as I respond tomorrow morning to the summons to jury duty for King County, I'm thinking, what do I do with this judgment issue? I uh, have to think deeply about uh that process you mentioned, uh, I'm doing the right thing. Uh, why aren't other people? Uh, and so it's like, hmm, at, at least I'm forewarned and I have a chance to do some serious thinking about it because I could be tempted to just slam the trap, you know. So, uh, We'll see what happens. Thank you for bringing that up. I mean, that's really insightful of you to be uh, kind of aware of that tendency. I mean, we have that tendency within us to just condemn if somebody out there feels frightening. And I know I, I struggle with this sometimes with the homeless, I mean, We've got a bunch of people were cleared out up near my condo on Capitol Hill the other day, and I felt sad for them. But then all of a sudden there was a big bunch of people in the park that's right across the street. And I was like, oh, dear, you know. And so it's really a struggle to be compassionate and have discernment about the problem without getting into this condemning those people because I feel kind of afraid of them, quite frankly. Yeah. yeah. So thank you. It's challenging. And a lot of it is so subtle, you know, and that's what we're really aware. We don't know these feelings are fueling what we do. Well, the idea came from you. So I thank you for that. But now <laughs> I'm, 
I'm obviously aware of the potential in my life. What do I do with this right now? Can I set my judgment aside? Yeah, and just really look at the facts and, and yeah, yeah. Good for you. Thank you for bringing that up. That's a, something for all of us to think about these areas where there are challenges like that. So maybe one more, and then we can um, go to announcements. If anything has any, anyone has anything else they would like to add. Uh, Lauren. Uh, just quickly, uh, we were talking in our group about um, it's not black and it's not just two links, you know, everything media exposes us and big cities expose us these days to just so many consequences and connections. Um, and um, so one thing can lead to another. And I was called for jury duty, Judy, jury duty also. And I, I just have an aversion. I don't want to do it. I don't want to be responsible for, I don't want to be responsible for causing someone else to go to jail or maybe have to be killed or, you know, I mean, it just feels like this horrible responsibility. I just don't want to do it. I postponed it twice, but I will be doing it early next year. But I, I just looked at that and it was just like, oh, I don't want the responsibility. I, I let somebody else do it. And so there you go. There's ethics right there. <laughs> and it's it's really complicated. And um, I do welcome being able to do this with Sangha because I need support with Sila, you know, with going through these, these uh, responsibilities and consequences and so forth. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Lauren. And that's a really good note to end on that we can support each other in considering these really complicated issues. So let's take a moment, very brief moment to sit together to close, sharing the merit of our practice with all beings. May they be happy, may they be peaceful, may they live in harmony, or may we all live in harmony, I should say, and may we all live with ease. Have a great day, everybody, and so nice to see you here. <laughs>